Well, good morning, Trinity. It's a pleasure to see all of you. For those who don't know, I am Isaac Farrell, the pastor here at Trinity. And once again, I ask you to turn your attention to the Gospel of Mark. Turn this mic off before the service, and I forgot to turn it back on, which means you weren't able to hear the wonderful voice right in front of you, and now you do. Now the mic's on, and I'm sorry to both Leanne and Todd for having turned off the mic. But we're in Mark, and my apologies are over. Let's keep moving. Last week, Jesus critiqued the Jewish culture. He critiqued their Jewish culture through their understanding of the law. For those who weren't here, he said, Sin comes from inside of us. And the law is meant to point that out. To point out that truth. Not to show us that we could achieve perfection. It's to say, you have sinned so deep down that you cannot achieve it. It's meant us meant for us to turn towards Christ in that action. This week, Jesus leaves the Jewish crowds. He leaves his cultural heritage and walks a long way out. He walks across hills, he walks across fields, across cultural lines, across physical barriers. He finally stops his long walk out among the Gentiles, the foreigners. And it's among these foreigners in Tyre and near Sidon And eventually in Decapolis, Jesus has two important interactions. Two of them. Now both show the true heart of Christ. Both show the true heart of the message he is bringing. Shows his love and mercy. And importantly for our study this morning, these interactions show an almost modern ideal about people's cultural and social differences from him. This morning we will see, in, see Jesus in a Gentile land in the first century, breaking down barriers, confronting expectations. Today we are introduced to Jesus Christ the radical. And it's a great passage for our modern world because our culture loves a radical. We love it. We love a revolutionary, someone that stands up against the cultural and structural powers in our world. Just as long as that person is on our side, standing up for what we like and ripping down what we don't like. You can think about it. College students buy shirts today with the revolutionary Che Guevara, which is absolutely hilarious to think about, capitalizing upon his image. But we as a culture, we make statues out of great leaders, revolutionaries from the last hundred years. And even in that same idea, within the last few years, our country started pulling down statues of old revolutionaries so we can replace them with new ones. We love revolutionaries. We love radicals. And then there's the people who don't want those statues to be torn down. They disagree with it. They'll fight to hold on to the leaders of the past while at the same time immortalize the people who are standing up to not let those statues go down. And so we want a new revolutionary. And it's not just there, not just with statues, not just with Che Guevara. We love the idea of a radical revolution so much that we push ourselves to be revolutionaries. We push ourselves to be radicals every day. We really do it in so many small ways. Some small step we take against the prevailing culture to say, I'm going to stand out against that because I'm good. I'm revolutionary. It makes us feel proud. We're making a difference. We're leading the way. We can't wait to tell someone, hey, did you know what I did? And maybe it's mask wearing. I'll go there. For or against. 
Right? I'm standing up for a purpose. I'm revolutionary. I'm not wearing one today. You know what? I'm not doing it. Or, you know what? I am wearing one because everyone else isn't. I'm going to do it because I'm a revolutionary. Maybe it's shopping. Or not shopping at stores. That company supports a cause I don't believe in. Therefore, I am going to rebel. I'm going to be that revolutionary that stops spending my money there. Or I'm only going to spend my money there because of what they're doing. What they believe in. We live in an age of radicalism. And it's very odd. It's an odd world. Because with so many radicals, with so many revolutionaries, with so much pressure to push and expand ideas, no position actually ends up standing out. No leader can step forward. It's a plurality without respect. Each of us is a great leader. Each person you meet tries to out-revolutionize the other person, pushing each side farther and farther into entrenched positions, and nothing gets accomplished. But our passage today, Jesus Christ is the radical. And he isn't just another brick in the radical wall. He isn't just another one touting some ideas. He is the greatest radical that we can find. He's the greatest radical this world has ever seen. A radical that could bring everyone together. Whereas the radicalism of our modern day pushes people apart, this radical brings them together. You see, in these two interactions, we have barriers broken down that won't happen again for another two millennia. Jesus isn't speaking into a world post-enlightenment. He isn't speaking into a world post-industrial revolution, post-sexual revolution. No, this is the first century. People were nailed to a cross and died by exposure and asphyxiation. That was a common occurrence, and Jesus is walking into that world and speaking to that world. Jesus the radical breaks down barriers because his message, the kingdom of God, the gospel truth found in Jesus Christ is a barrier-breaking message. Not only in the first century, but in the 21st century. That's why he's relevant for us today. So two, par two barriers we're going to see Jesus break down in these two interactions. A cultural barrier and a physical barrier. As these barriers are broken down, we'll find the message Jesus teaches and the actions Jesus does show us a radical truth. In our pursuit for radicalism and our pursuit for revolutionary, only in Jesus can we find true freedom, can we find true joy, can we find true forgiveness. So I say, give up these false leaders. Give up these false revolutionaries and radicals. Throw away your dreams of leading a crowd to fight for a cause and line up behind the one who has already done it. Line up behind the radical Jesus Christ. Let's begin. Our first barrier, the cultural barrier. First interaction Jesus has. It's with a Gentile woman. Mark is quite clear about that. He says it a few different times. Woman, Gentile, Syrophoenician, it's a lot of things. Verse 24 lets us know where we're starting. Jesus left where he was among the Jewish people, and he went to a town with foreign people. It's there he enters a house. This house could be a store or a place to sit down. It could be a common house where the culture just gathers around to sit and enjoy each other. Whatever it is, a woman spots him, recognizes him, approaches him, falls at his feet, cries out to him. Now, according to the Jewish people at that time, a woman speaking to a rabbi, speaking to a teacher of the law, is it's a big no-no. 
Not supposed to happen. A rabbi can approach a woman, he can speak to her, but for the woman to come to a teacher, it presumes equality in cultural standing. It presumes that they have equal footing and they can approach each other. And according to the ancient world and the first century, men and women were not equal. They were not on cultural level playing field. May sound terrible to your 21st century ears, but remember, it's the first century. Women were not held in high regard. And on top of that, this is a Gentile woman. Right? 26. Now this woman was a Gentile. Mark's like, hey, big red flag, pay attention to who this is. It's a Gentile woman approaching a Jewish teacher. The Jewish people don't like Gentiles. There were foreigners who worshipped pagan gods. They ate unclean food. They failed to keep any of the commandments. If they interacted with them, they became unclean. That's what the first half of chapter 7 was all about. Their distaste for them was quite deep. And oddly, the Gentiles knew that. They knew they weren't liked or respected. A foreigner would not interact with the Jewish people if they could. Their expectation was to be hated, to be disgusted by them. It was not worth their time to talk to someone who didn't really want to talk to them, so they avoided them. And this woman approaches Jesus. She's breaking social expectations. She's breaking societal rules by approaching and speaking to Jesus. In Matthew's version of the story, Matthew 15, he includes the disciples. We don't get the disciples in this, but he says that the disciples were complaining about the woman. Because she was crying out to Jesus. And they said, send, Jesus, send her away. She's annoying us. She's too loud. Please get her away. It shows how much they disliked her. But she was desperate. Her child was demon-possessed. She knew of no other way to give her child relief. She knew of no other way to stop what was happening than by asking a man who was known to cast out demons, who was known to heal children. And so she begs him. She cries out to him. She falls at his feet saying, Please, we need help. So what is Jesus' response? What is Jesus' response to the social taboo? Verse 27. Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's not a pretty statement for a radical leader. <laughs> sounds like he's calling her a dog. That's what it sounds like, right? And I'll be clear to you, he is. <laughs> it doesn't just sound like it. He's calling her a dog. As I said, the Jewish people did not hold Gentiles in high regard. But this seems abnormal. For our view of Jesus. It seems weird. He doesn't seem like the type to look down on others. To speak down to others. The only people he speaks down to are the religious rulers. This is a woman who's in desperate need. Two chapters ago he cast out a demon of a man who was a Gentile. Who was living in a graveyard. And he sat next to him. He talked with him until he gained his, main, his mind back. That's the Jesus we know. This is weird. Calling a woman a dog. Even the Gospel of John has teachings of Jesus interacting with a Samaritan woman at a well who has had multiple husbands, multiple partners. He's talking to her. 
You have the parable of the Good Samaritan told by Jesus, where he's encouraging and showing that this good news is to other people, that there can be good people beyond the Jewish people. It seems odd for Jesus to sit here and call this woman a dog. Commentators across time have discussed how difficult this passage is, in particular, verse 27. One book I read described the line as the great stumbling block of the church. How could a radical, barrier-breaking leader, God who is love, be this harsh to a woman in desperate need? All right, let's give this passage a fair shake. Because this first response on the surface seems harsh, but Jesus' statement actually gives us three radical ideas. Three. He establishes personhood. He gives spiritual encouragement. And finally, he brings about true faith. In, these, in this one statement, he does those three things. Establishes personhood, gives spiritual encouragement, and brings about true faith. First, establishing personhood. He responds to the woman. That may seem obvious, it may sound like an obvious response, but it's the kind of culture-breaking action in itself. It's the radical movement that we wouldn't expect in the first century by a Jewish leader. He doesn't push her away. He doesn't ignore her or try to send her somewhere else or send someone else to deal with her, saying, I'm too good. No, no, no. He speaks to her. He looks her in the eye and he gives her a response. She's a person to be addressed. That immediately welcomes her. I'll give an example. If we spot someone we don't like in the grocery store, someone we're avoiding, we may try to avoid them. We may go through a few different aisles. We may try and aim the cart to avoid these awkward situations. But if we're pushed into the same space, we often just ignore the person outright until they make it too abundantly obvious that they need to talk to you and go, Oh, I didn't even see you there. I'm sorry. We don't say that that's not a person, but in our actions, we're not making eye contact. We're not interested in talking to that person. They're not a person in the way we interact with them. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't see her so lowly that she doesn't deserve a response. She doesn't deserve his attention. He looks at her and he speaks to her. Establishing that personhood first. Second, spiritual encouragement. The particular words that he says. What does he say? He says, let the children be fed first. Not that he doesn't say, let the children be fed only. He says, let the children be fed first. That statement presumes there will be others. There will be another time after the children. And we focus a lot on the dog title, but Jesus opens the door for others beyond the Jewish people. And we know that to be true because in just a short while we see the greatest church planter arise out of the church. The Apostle Paul, who also becomes known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. He reaches out beyond the borders of Israel to all the ends of the earth. The timing and order doesn't necessarily equate to importance. The statement allows the woman to know she will be cared for. I like 20 pages on someone just emphasizing this word first and how it emboldens her to speak out after that. First. Yes, you have spiritual significance. Yes, you are being encouraged by saying that it will at one time be welcomed. Third, finally, Response brings about true faith. This one we've got to take a little bit of work. Because the response to 
Jesus, by this woman, says, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Her response really pays for all of this. All of this harsh statement that seems from Jesus. If you read the Gospels, pay attention to the words of Jesus. You get a sense of how he speaks to people, how he interacts to draw out ideas and thoughts. And often, he leans into their expectations. He leans into their understandings of culture and life to try and draw out a good response. Sometimes in that leaning, sometimes in that pushing, it causes them to admit sins. Sometimes it causes them to recognize problems. Sometimes it's harsh. Sometimes it's difficult. It brings about hurt and shame and fear to rise up. But he always asks the right questions to draw it out. My prime example of this is the Samaritan woman in the Gospel of John. The Samaritan woman in the well, right? He greets the woman, and Jesus asks her to call upon her husband. Like, hey, go get your husband. We'll come and talk. And she admits, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you answer well. You've had actually five husbands, and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. Jesus knew the answer to his question, but he still asked it. He still said, hey, you need to confront the fact that you have been sleeping around. And yet she still found it intriguing. He was pushing her to admit the truth, pushing her to recognize her sin and her faults and see who was standing right in front of her. She felt shame. She was going to the well alone. But the result of that conversation was her coming to faith. She ends up going to the crowd and saying, come here, meet this man who knew everything about me. Come talk to this man. Our passage is exactly like that moment by the well. The woman rushes up to Jesus, expects to be ignored, to be shoved away by one of his disciples, but Jesus talks to her. He addresses her as a person. Yes, the language seems derogatory. It seems like, why would you even say that? That seems mean. But it causes her to push forward. It causes her true faith to come out so that she can recognize and trust in Jesus alone. The woman doesn't care if she's thought of as lowly or unclean. She wants to be near the bread of life. She wants the scraps because the scraps are better than nothing at all. She needs to find the small crumbs of truth found at the feet of Jesus Christ. That church, that's true faith. To her, she would rather be a dog at the feet of Jesus than to be anywhere else. Now, you may push me on that, and I understand. You may push and say, Isaac, she's not a dog, and she shouldn't think herself a dog. And I say, yeah, you're right. She shouldn't. I agree with you. She is a person made in the image of God. But what do we see? Matthew 15, Jesus, after her statement, after her answer by saying, Lord, I would still await the crumbs under the table. Jesus says to her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Oh, woman, great is your faith. He titles her. He responds to it. He lifts her up. He heals her daughter. This brief exchange, it's miraculous. On the surface, it seems like Jesus is no radical, but rather just succumbing to the problems of the first century Jewish culture. But the statement is made clear. Her strong faith is there. 
the faith that was stronger than anyone we have seen in the Gospel of Mark. No one has gotten to Jesus to respond as positively as this woman. This woman trusts Jesus more than the disciples, more than the Jewish rulers or the Jewish people. He alone is who she relies upon. She knew she deserved little, but she received so much more than she knew. This is the greatness of the radical Jesus. He breaks down the barrier between Jew and Gentiles. He breaks down the barrier between men and women. And he reaches all because all are welcome in the kingdom of God. All are welcome to hear and taste the bread of life. So you ask yourself, what great radical have I put my hope in? What political or societal leader seems to say all the things we want to hear? Christians line up behind pastors, they line up behind theologians, only to be disappointed when the pastor or theologian says something stupid or sinful or just outright theologically wrong. Non-Christians, they place their hope in loudspeakers and political platforms. They want to change the world. And then they get disappointed by a political leader who got elected and did nothing that they promised to do. Or worse, these pastors and politicians rise in notoriety because they separate people. They say, look at how terrible that group is. We're going to be better. We're going to make it better because they're ruining everything. Pastors and politicians, they're not radicals. They aren't revolutionaries. They are posing as ones to gain a following. Jesus was a radical, and then he gained a following. Drop your hope in anything beyond the one who can break cultural barriers, who can draw people together and bring you true faith. You want to buy a Che Guevara shirt? Do it. You want to put a bumper sticker on your car? It's fine. You want to hang a flag outside your house? You can do it. No judgments there. But no, these supposed revolutionaries, these flags and ideals, they will never draw you to true faith. They will never fix the world that you're thinking needs to be fixed this way. They won't give you an unmeasurable freedom. They won't give you unspeakable joy. It's only when you recognize your need for a true radical savior. Can you hear Jesus say, great is your faith? And speaking of hearing, we're going to move on to our second one, second barrier, the physical barrier, our next story. The second story in our passage brings us to a location Jesus visited once before, Decapolis. Already made reference to it earlier in our sermon. The region was full of Gentiles, full of pig farmers. Last time Jesus was in this region, he cast a demon out of a man into a, a group of pigs, sending them off into the water. The man who had broken chains and lived among the tombs, amazed people by coming back to his mind. Talking with Jesus, wishing to be with Jesus, Jesus rather sends him out to the people and he tells everyone. We're told in verse 32, Jesus returning to the area drew a crowd. And that crowd was a man who was deaf and mute. Unable to hear, unable to speak. It's a very difficult situation in our own day. It's hard. But back in the first century, it was awful, downright terrible. No way to learn to speak, no sign language, no hearing aids. He could not work or have relationships, this man. 
He could only learn by sight, and even then, I doubt many would have the patience to teach him or train him up. This man is essentially a drain on his family, and if his family didn't want him or want to care for him, he was left to the streets to beg for food, for shelter, for anything. As we would say, this man is on the edge of society. He isn't so far gone that he's out living among the tombs or out in the wilderness, but he doesn't have normal relationships or normal interactions with the world. It's ignored. We see these kind of people every day. If you have the eyes to see them, you can see them. It's in this very city. Deaf and mute aren't big hurdles for our modern day. They can interact well, but mental health problems, physical abnormalities, drug addictions, homelessness, Sometimes by choice, those homelessness things. Sometimes, because of mental health or drug addictions, does it cause them to be homeless? We can see people on the edge of society if we have eyes to see them. Every week, I drive by Green Square Park to come to church on Sunday. Every week, I come by there. And every week, I see homeless people there. Go into the public library. It's right there off of Green Square Park. You have homeless people sitting there, not knowing what else to do with their time. They sit on the computers, they read books, they beg enough to get a pastry or a cup of coffee. They're in the building. But some of you, maybe you don't go downtown, that's fine. Also, you live on the northeast side. Drive down Blair's Ferry, near the Sam's Club. What do you see on the streets? There are people begging. Drive down Collins, near Coles. There are people on the corner street, begging, asking for help. You will see it. At stoplights, you'll see it on street corners. People on the edge of society with nowhere else to go. This is the kind of person that was brought to Jesus. How do we respond? We often roll up our window, we try to avoid eye contact because then you're interacting with them. What does Jesus do? He doesn't push him away, he doesn't avoid eye contact, he doesn't reel back in disgust. No, just like the Gentile woman, he addresses the man. He sees him and he pulls him away in verse 33. He took the man away from the crowd to help him. Now the specific actions of Jesus bringing him aside are really not germane to the point that I'm emphasizing here. The fingers and the ears, the spit, the touching of the tongue, even the words spoken, the Aramaic, Ephatha. These are small details that are all over the miracles of Jesus. You probably could think of a number of times that Jesus has touched someone, healing them, or spoken something, causing a miraculous occasion. Even the one occasion in which he spits in the ground, rubbing the dirt together, rubbing it into someone's eye. There are always those kind of details to emphasize the miracle. But there's one aspect that you don't see a lot. One aspect amidst the healing that I want you to think about. Verse 34. Looking up to heaven, he, that is Jesus, sighed. And he said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. Jesus Christ sighed. He sighed in the midst of his miracle. I hope over the last few months we've seen that Mark doesn't waste a word. It's the shortest gospel. He packs it full of details for particular reasons. He's not just filling text to fill it. So what causes Jesus to sigh? In seminary, I began preaching and leading services regularly. I got into this habit of breathing in and out right before I prayed. 
So it'd be welcomed up, or it'd be a leading into the service, and we would just finish the song, and I would go up to the mic, and I would just pause, and I'd go, and then I would pray. I did this to calm myself. I did this to reorient my mind. I was trying to show that I cared about the seriousness of the moment. To say I was doing something very important. But an elder pulled me aside after doing this for months and months. And he said to me, stop sighing before you go and pray. I said, what do you mean? He said, it sounds like you don't want to do it. It sounds like you're regretting being up there. That it's a huge burden for you to walk up there and pray to God. Stop doing that. I really appreciated the man because he was very blunt and honest. And I was like, that's a good point. I shouldn't do that. <laughs> is Jesus burdened by this healing? Is he regretting setting foot into capitalists again and going, here's another one. Oh boy. No. This is the sigh of an outpouring of emotion and love. This is the sigh of someone who cares deeply for someone who's right in front of them. Back in Mark 1, Jesus heals a leper. Mark tells us that Jesus was moved with emotion to heal him. We don't get that many words in chapter 7, but just for a moment, we get the feelings of Jesus Christ the radical. Here's a man who is deaf and mute. He is broken. He looks out. He sees the hearts and eyes of the people around him. They're hopeful, but not too hopeful. They don't think what's going to happen is going to happen. They don't believe it entirely. They wish for it to happen, but they just don't know. And that's the world around us. It's the world around this man. It is a broken world, just as this man is broken. And it goes beyond even the ears and the tongue. It goes down to his soul. His hopefulness is gone. He has no light in his eyes. He doesn't expect any help. He's been cast aside time and time again. His life and his purpose have been pushed to the edge of society. He is resigned to a life of hearing and saying nothing. Some of you may know that I have traveled a great deal throughout my ministry. I've been all over the U.S. And some of you also have traveled. Larger cities, smaller cities, whatever it may be. Some of you have also probably spent time working and caring for these people on the edge of society. I spent my time while living in Chicago, helping out, spending time with the homeless. And I also preached when I was in San Diego at a food bank where they had to listen to me preach before eating, which gave them a great appetite. There are times when you run into people and they look broken. You make eye contact with them and avoid the eye contact you have. If you've been living on the street long enough, they feel ashamed, they feel sad, they recognize their smell, they recognize their appearance, they have trouble interacting with you. They seem fearful. Shadows of a person is what's in front of them. And yet as you look at them, you have a heart for them. You feel it, you feel bad, you wish to help them any way that you possibly can, you care. I really believe this is what Jesus saw. Empathy. Empathy for a man who was broken in spirit, broken in heart. A man who thought no one in the world cared for him. And here was the creator of the world, standing in front of him, sighing and touching him. It's in this moment that we see the true radical. Breaking down physical barriers of hearing and speaking, interacting with a man broken in heart, and in spirit, 
in our passage, Jesus Christ has spoke across gender lines. He spoke across cultural lines, societal lines, even speaking to those who cannot hear. His actions of healing, notwithstanding, all of those actions, all those barrier breakings, they sound like a modern-day radical. It's the type of thing that you tell people and go, wow, that's a great guy. I should go hear more about him. He's helped the outcasts of society. He's cared for their plights, and he's done all he can to encourage them, to empower them. You hear that language? That's a modern language that I'm using. It's very helpful. But if we left it at that, it would be an unfulfilled sermon. If we always spoke about was the idea of encouraging the underprivileged, the people on the edge of society, the outcasts, then I could go and I could get this sermon published and say, hey, look at this. Isn't it great? A first century Jewish man was doing something that we're doing right now. Wouldn't we wish for that? But if I did that, we'd miss the heart of this whole passage. We'd miss the whole idea of what's going on with this barrier breaking. Right? Verse 37 gives us the response of the crowd after the healing. Verse 37 says, They were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It's in that last verse that something truly special has been said. Jesus' radicalness does, does cross cultural and physical barriers. It does. But it doesn't stop there. We can't stop there because it really, he really did heal this girl with the demon. He really did open up the ears and the mouth of this man. That last statement in verse 37 isn't just a response by the people of Decapolis. It is a direct quote from God to the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 says this, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. These Gentiles have seen the salvation of God before them. They have cried out that God himself has come to save them, not just from the cultural and societal and physical plights of mankind. He has come to save them from their spiritual barriers between them and God. The spiritual plights of mankind. Jesus knocks down all kinds of barriers. But the greatest barrier he knocks down is the spiritual barrier between God and man. These two stories are wonderful. A Gentile woman, a deaf-mute man. These are cultural and physical barriers. But the sin that makes people possessed by demons, the sin that deafens their ears and shuts their mouths, the sin that causes separation between Jew and Gentile, the sin that separates man from woman, the sin that pushes people to the outskirts of society and causes us to not sigh when we see their difficulty, those two short stories show Jesus knocking down that barrier too. Jesus has said time and time again, he who has ears, let him hear. And now he has just opened the ears of a deaf man. Paul says later, there's no Jew or Gentile man or free, slave or free in Jesus Christ. Barriers are broken in the radical Jesus Christ. And we can all see 
how the world responds to cultural and physical barriers. We can find heroes and radicals to champion ideas of change, fix the world, but it's, at its very core, we are all spiritually separated from God. We all have a spiritual barrier between us and God, and it's sin. That sin makes us deaf, it makes us mute, it makes us culturally different, it makes us dogs before God. And yet God has healed us. He's spoken to us through Jesus Christ. Church, our radical Savior knocked down these barriers for us. He knocked down those barriers to save us. And so we're now sent out by Jesus Christ to tell the world about this great radical message and a radical Savior. All you who are hated and thought nothing of, all you who are cast aside by society, trust in Jesus Christ. He will open your ears, he will loose your tongue, and he will give you great faith. Let's pray.